Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today for episode 262, my guest is Craig Raw, and we are speaking about his project, Sparrow Wallet. Now, you guys know I'm a big fan of Spectre Desktop, but it's also great to have a lot of options that are also out there promoting and building in slightly different ways. So Sparrow Wallet is an interesting one, and we get into why Sparrow. We talk about progression steps for new Bitcoiners and being Uncle Jim and a range of things. I think you'll enjoy this one. But first, a message for the sponsors of the show. Greetings, Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com private. That's swanbitcoin.com private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally. Corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans and one love. Lend by HodlHodl is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow globally and anonymously. There's no KYC. So don't have your stablecoins lying around. You can lend it and earn returns. HodlHodl's lending allows you to earn 25% on average, which is one of the highest returns on the market. Also, there's no need to sell your Bitcoins even if you are short of funds. You can get some fiat stablecoin liquidity by putting up some Bitcoin as collateral, and you don't have to trust one individual party because with lend at hodl hodl your bitcoin collateral is locked in a two of three escrow lend at hodl hodl is a bitcoin DeFi decentralized finance allowing peer-to-peer lending and borrowing with this platform you set your own offers you put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate go check it out lend.hodlhodl.com If you are interested in Bitcoin mining, Compass is an online marketplace making it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin. This is not a cloud mining option. Compass helps you buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. For years, we've heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now with Compass, everyone can tap into those economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. So if you are unsure about how to get started with mining Bitcoin, Compass will help you by offering hardware and hosting bundles, eliminating the need for advanced technical knowledge. You can also check out my recent episode with Wit Gibbs of the team and visit them at compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show. Craig, welcome to the show. Hi there, Stefan. It's great to be here. So, Craig, I've uh, I've been seeing what you're doing with Sparrow Wallet, and I thought it's uh, time to get this guy on the show. So, can you? I mean, obviously, I know you're under a pseudonym, right? So, don't dox anything about yourself that you don't want, that you're not comfortable to. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got into Bitcoin and why you're interested in Bitcoin? Sure. So, um, I've really been in it for quite a long, long time, but largely, you know, just watching from the sidelines. Um, 
sitting every day on our Bitcoin back in the day. Um, and, you know, ever, ever since then, just really wanting to be part of things in a, in a more kind of day-to-day manner. And that really just became possible for me personally uh, towards the beginning of last year. So that was the time when I was able to put aside some time and really get into things. And that's uh, the outcome of that is really the, the sort of Sparrow Bitcoin wallet that you see today. Fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about how the idea for Sparrow came about? Sure. So the key idea that I wanted to work on um, was how to become self-sovereign over your own finances. And, you know, what does that really mean Um, for me? And I think this is an idea you see over and over in the Bitcoin space was really about trust minimization. Um, So at the time, I had recently listened to your first interview with Michael Flaxman, which is, I think, SLP 97, um, which, which is which is really great. And he goes into some detail about the chosen nonce attack, which is where you know, a hardware wallet manufacturer can effectively have the sort of sunset attack, um, you know, quite late in the day by just effectively um, having a a certain chosen nonce, which then they can, uh, you know, steal your funds. And that was, you know, I think just a really scary idea. And the, the, the interesting part about that was that you could eliminate virtually this class of attack by just getting hardware wallets from different vendors and creating a multi-sig setup with those um, because it just became so difficult to um, action that kind of attack with that sort of setup. So it was this multi-vendor, multi-sig idea that I was trying to work on myself and I was doing it with the Electrum client at that stage. And it was just really difficult to do. Um, so, you know, that was one of the key ideas that I was working on at the start. Now, it's true to say that the ecosystem has greatly improved since that point. But I think that that was one of the, the sort of key ideas was just getting the, uh, the, the sort of multi-vendor, multi-sig setup done in as trustless a way as I could. The, the second idea that I wanted to kind of work on around this theme was that, you know, there needs to be a degree within every wallet software that you use that you need to trust the wallet to some extent. But the idea of how we can minimize this degree of trust was one that was really trying to you know, was 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 an idea that I was working on. And ultimately, I believe that, you know, the more confident you are in what you're doing, the fewer mistakes you make. And that idea of allowing the user to see as much detail as they can, they can, you know, as as can be shown, really builds that degree of confidence in what you're doing and allows you to ultimately, you know, dig into the details if you really want to and see that the wallet is in fact doing what it says it's doing. Gotcha. And so in relation to Electrum, what was the main thing that you saw that you wanted to change about the way Electrum operates in terms of Electrum multi-signature? Sure. So, I mean, at the time, it was really difficult to set up an, an air-gapped multi-vendor multi-sig. Um, you know, I was trying to do it with a number of different hard- hardware wallets and you know, it, it just really wasn't easy at all. Um, I had to write my own scripts to get certain information out of certain hard, hardware wallets, and it was a difficult thing to do. But then I also was, you know, looking at the transaction screen on the Electrum wallet client, and there was a lot of information being shown there, perhaps, but, you know, you really had to trust that that dialogue was showing you what was actually going on. Um, and ultimately, 
when you're working with a cold storage wallet, you know, you get uh, um, what I think are called the cold storage sweats, where you, you, it all comes down perhaps to one or two transactions at the end of the day that you need to send. Maybe you are, you know, transferring from one cold storage setup to another or whatever it is. And, you know, that's, that's a really scary thing to do. And you want just as much confidence as you can have before you press that broadcast button. Yeah, that's a great point around giving yourself that confidence in the setup that you are actually sending where you want to send it to and you're seeing all the right details in terms of, you know, are you receiving into the right address and all of that sort of stuff. So moving to the server model and what is actually, what is the wallet or the client calling out to? So another wallet, obviously, as you know, I'm a big fan of Spectre Wallet, but I think it's great to see other great options like Sparrow. I know that uh, Spectre, if you will, tried to popularize the idea of just directly calling out to Bitcoin Core, where I know with with Sparrow, I think you started with the Electrum server approach, and now you're also supporting this idea of directly calling to Bitcoin Core. So can you just elaborate some of your thoughts there on the different approaches there? Sure. So I think it's important to say at the start um, that privacy is a journey. And, you know, what we're really talking about here is is how to keep your coins private rather than losing the funds. Uh, I think those are two different things. Um, and it's important not to, you know, go and create a whole lot of FUD in the space about saying, well, you can't do it that way because it just doesn't doesn't work, you know. But I think that what I'm really interested is in is is trying to eliminate a certain class of attack versus various mitigation strategies that will work, but you have to kind of follow and do everything quite carefully along a certain you know line of thinking. So one of the the ideas that I had um, at at the very start was I just wanted to use an Electrum server versus using the uh, the core wallet in the back background. Now it's obviously simpler to just set up a Bitcoin core node and to call directly into that. You've only got one piece of software to install apart from your your wallet soft software itself. Um, but there's one really big downside to that in that you're now using the core wallet and the core wallet is stored on your hard drive in an unencrypted format. So, you know, your your funds are not necessarily at risk from di- direct theft because it should only be the public keys if you're using something like the spec spec Spectre. But one thing that is, you know, certainly at, at risk is if anyone was to get access to that computer, whether it's physical access or remote access, because remember, it is a node and it is presumably connected to the internet, then they have access to the public keys and the addresses um, of your wallet. Now, that's, that's, um, that's not a great thing, because now, obviously, they know how much you have, and they can go in there and potentially target you. So one way to just eliminate this is to run an Electrum server, which effectively, rather than Bitcoin Core, which just indexes the transactions of that wallet, Electrum server indexes all of the transactions in the Bitcoin blockchain. And whenever you ask it for the history of a particular address, it just goes and looks that up out of its really big index and says, here it is, and then forgets that you have asked. So effectively, you've now taken what was a storage on, you know, sort of media on your hard drive and replaced that with just a very ephemeral kind of RAM access lookup, which is then forgotten. And that kind of idea just eliminates that whole class of attack, which I think is a very powerful idea. 
Yeah, interesting. So just to replay that for listeners then, I guess, and maybe paraphrasing it a little bit, is one of the ways in the, let's call it the Spectre model of calling out to Bitcoin Core, you are, I guess, giving the public key from your Sparrow wallet or your Spectre wallet out to the Bitcoin Core node, and it has to then keep that public key there so it knows to watch for what transactions. And then what you're saying is because the Electrum server model uses like the fully indexing model or an address index, it can then look up against that specific address that it's calling for and asking, oh, hey, show me the balances on these 20 addresses, let's say, and it will feed you back the balance and the the transactions of that only. And potentially, if you are now layering on the fact that this user may be connecting via Tor, then you're getting an additional level of you don't you don't necessarily know where this user was at the time they were interested in the you know, these addresses, correct? That's right. Yes. And I, I think the Tor thing is actually a really interesting addendum to it. So many people uh, expose their Bitcoin core node over Tor because it allows them to then go and call into that node wherever they are in the sort of world. So you can have your node set, set up and that sits at home, perhaps. And then wherever you are, you can just call into it. But I think the danger there is that most soft software stores its um, server configuration details in plain plain text, or at least there's no simple way apart from entering a password every time you open your 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 wallet client as opposed to your actual wallet itself you know you can't really encrypt those details easily and having a tor a dot onion address accessible over the internet um, to a, a bitcoin core node which holds your wallet just means anybody can go and fetch the details of that wallet as a remote attack. And I think that that's quite a worrying thing. You know, that's certainly just a class of attack I don't want to have to worry about, especially if I'm using my wallet software on a daily use computer. And and we all know that, you know, one shouldn't expect that computer to be virus free. I see. Yeah. And it might also make it easy for startup processes in some way, as in to get a new user to use this kind of thing, because there are sometimes some difficulties and maybe some teething issues getting a new user to use their own, let's say, using a cold card, because you either have to get them to, now in most cases, they might have to buy, say, a one terabyte hard drive or an SSD and plug that to their computer to have a full archival node, i.e. the full blockchain history, which as we speak is, you know, uh, maybe 370 or 380 gigabytes, or they're going for the pruned node approach, in which case sometimes you can have issues there around keeping that up to date, or it might be if the public key hasn't been ingested correctly then sometimes you get these weird issues where they can't see the balance there correctly and so sometimes it's just these little teething issues that are a little bit difficult but if you've got the electrum server model and maybe you can tell that new coiner hey just paste in this tor address into your sparrow wallet and then type in you know the port 50001 or whatever and then from their point of view yes it'll take a little bit longer to connect to tor but once it's done it just works right yeah, that's it. And I, I think, you know, there's, as I say, it's it's really about a journey, you know, you don't have to start off with the most secure setup from the start, and you shouldn't let that put you off, you shouldn't be thinking, well, unless I go for the sort of what, what I would call the expert level, um, you know, I just shouldn't even begin, I think that you should absolutely begin. And you should, you know, start, start off with what is the sort of easiest way of doing it, if, if that's the right place for you to begin, which is, in Sparrow's case, connecting to a public Electrum server. Now, 
with that, you're obviously giving your public keys, not not your private keys, but your you know the the sort of amount that you own over to these servers. Uh, I think it's a pretty low risk thing to do, so long as you're not connecting to a random server, which is something that the Electron client does. Um, Sparrow uses a curated list of servers. That's not to say that those servers. Uh, are guaranteed to be good, but it's just there's a higher chance of it. Um, and then you can move on from there. Perhaps then, you know, you move on to a Bitcoin core node and you have the issue that I talked about, but at least then you're validating all of the transactions yourself. And that's an important step forward. And then beyond that, getting to an Electrum server is what I would call really just taking away that risk of somebody coming across your node and finding out what's in your wallet. And that's that's another great step forward. Yeah. And so you mentioned there what you would call you know, an expert level. So could you just walk through, in your view, someone's listening out there and there's probably a range of listeners. Some are beginner level, some are intermediate, some are advanced. How would you spell that out for them in terms of the high level progression that they should go through from beginner through to advanced level? Sure. So, you know, as I said, um, the beginner level, I think you're really just looking to um, get your funds off an exchange. And that's super important, not your keys, not your coins. So you want to, at that stage, just be getting some kind of wallet soft, 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 software. Let's say you've chosen Sparrow and you don't really have um, an ability or the time to set up your own node at this stage. So you choose the first option, which is really just connecting to a public Electrum server. Now, this is a model which is used by many wallets. Blue Wallet use it as well. They have their own set of Electrum servers, which they connect back to. Um, and it's it's a decent model, but you should be aware that your you know the amount of your funds is being shared. Beyond that point, you really want to start thinking about how can I become more self-sovereign over my funds? How can I avoid sending my balance out? And that's about trying to get your own node up and going. You know that's about either a downloading Bitcoin Core, validate dating that you've got a, a correct and verified download, getting that installed, syncing the blockchain. All of that is quite a, a big step up. So, you know, it's not something that which most users will find easy, but there are a number of different node packages out there which allow people to do it in a much easier way these days. So I think that that part of the ecosystem is getting a lot better. And then once you've got that node set up, you can connect your wallet to it and you can then be sure that all of your transactions are not going beyond that node. And then you know, that would, I, is what I would call the sort of intermediate level. And then beyond that, you have the expert le level, which is really about, I think, trying to minimize the amount of time um, that your cold storage wallet in particular is exposed to anyone, right? So you want to only have that wallet open for the minimum amount of time that you need it to be open for. And you want those public keys to be exposed to as limited um, a number of servers and as for as limited amount of time as you can be. So that's about running an Electrum server, your, your own one, which connects to your own node and getting the information about your wallet, the most recent information, and then disconnecting the wallet and all information about those keys is then not stored anywhere except for your encrypted wallet file. I see. Yep. And then in terms of the progression, I think for typical new coiners, it might be starting on, say, a phone wallet, right? Just a small amount on a phone, just learning about it, then maybe a hardware wallet, and then potentially 
that's where the conversation around maybe start maybe considering a hardware wallet with a passphrase or looking for the multi-sig approach. So how do you think about that and guiding uh, how should a, a person who's new think about that progression step there? Yeah, so I, I think you should do um, the things that you are comfortable with. I think that's the first principle. Don't feel that you need to go, as I was saying earlier, to the most secure setup from day one. I think that's going to put a lot of people off and maybe actually make them uh, less secure at the end of the day. Another concept, which I think is very important, um, is that the, I don't think there are any shortcuts in this. You know, you're not going to get away if you are truly being self-sovereign over your funds from learning and understanding what you're doing. So I think that that's you know just a, a, a very important point is that you know you are you're operating in a different model. We are so used to trusting banks and and other people to look after our funds and as we know that hasn't in the in the end worked out all that well for us um, so this is a different model and, and I you know people often talk about how you know the user experience is not there yet and people are not going to do this thing because it's too hard to do I actually have a different view on that I think you know when it comes to your wealth and your money and the the other side of the coin if you will, of not looking after these things and not taking uh, responsibility for them yourself, then I think you will really, um, you will find the the time to to learn. So I think I just wanted to say that up front um, as, as a different perspective on, on how to think about words. But I, I think, you know, ultimately trying to to start start off with a phone wallet is a great place to begin. You know, you should you should absolutely get your coins off the exchange. That is job num- number one. And when you do it, you should make the necessary backups. You should write down your seed, seed, seed words. And then from there, you know, one thing that I suggest to people who ask me, I just say buy a hard hardware wallet right off the bat. You know, just go go ahead, order one because it's it's a great place to it, it's not too hard for a beginner to use um once you're used to it once you've used it for a while then i think it's appropriate to start thinking about a multi-sig sort of setup that doesn't mean that you know you you have the level of funds that might require it but if you're lying awake at night wondering whether you've done things right whether you're actually secure then maybe multi-sig is right for you yeah, and so part of the I guess difficulty with multisig is that there are all these other little nooks and crannies and things to think about. So, for example, how do you do backups and recovery with that, and how do you make sure that you know you really get comfortable with using it as well? And then there are also issues around things like okay, maybe the QR codes won't all be compatible across the different wallets or different applications, and sometimes there are little difficulties with that. So I guess you have to get comfortable with a certain setup and a certain wallet and then sort of progress up the stack or progress up the levels in that way. So can you tell us a little bit about the different hardware wallets that are supported by Sparrow? Sure. So Sparrow supports pretty much all of the popular hardware wallets, whether it's a cold card, a Trezor, um, a Kobo Vault, um, Bitbox, um, you know, all of those, uh, whether you're connecting them over USB, whether you're connecting them um, via an SD card or via the QR codes. Um, you know, I think the USB, you know, sort of access is the traditional way of doing it. Um, and certainly we are very lucky to have now the HWI project by Andrew Chow, which I think has, 
you know, all of the hard hardware wallet manufacturers, you know, make sure that their hardware wallets can talk through through that. So that's that's really great and has largely taken away, I think, a lot of the risk around USB access. You know, you have a standardized library that most wallet soft software uses um, to access them. So so long as they can talk to that, which is very much in their interest to do, um, then I think you're safe on that front. From an SD card point of view, it's really just around a file format, and those file formats don't really change all that often. Um, so again, once you have a setup you're com comfortable with, it's unlikely that that's going, going to break. And then finally, on the QR front, we are still in some degree of flux. We have a standard, which is called a uniform resource, or UR, there's two versions of it out there in the wild. Um, there's a legacy version, which Kobo currently uses. Um, and then there is the more standards-based, what is called UR2, which um, both of which Sparrow supports. Um, and I think the sort of industry is going to settle quite soon on the UR2 um, format. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this year we'll see a lot more in terms of the QR space and, and that being used because it really is such a great user experience. I see. And in terms of being able to do like an import from another wallet. So as an example, let's say somebody had set up a Spectre multi-sig and then they tried to import that into Sparrow and then be, still being able to do the transactions and do QR codes and so on. That's still a possibility. Yeah, so, you know, that's been certainly one of my key goals within Sparrow Sparrow. I've been sort of guided by the idea of just having this, this wallet soft software that can work with as many other different, uh, you know, hardware wallets, soft, soft software wallets as I could. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's often portrayed as multi-sig is bad because multi-sig is hard and you're going to lose your funds. But I think the reality is that it's not that bad. And, you know, most people, um, most users that talk talk to me often report how they created a wallet in Spec Spectre and imported it into Sparrow. The the arrival of output descriptors on the, on the scene has really made things much more easy. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of wallets just use those. Um, certainly in Sparrow, that remains one of the easiest ways to get to set up with your wallet or to transfer your wallet is just to cut and paste what looks like a sort of a three or four line string of numbers and digits across and then put that in and your entire wallet is then set up and ready to go just off that. So, you know, that's a very standards based approach to sort of doing, doing, doing things. I think the, the fear around multi-sig um, is no doubt coming from a good place, but I don't think we should be too eager to dismiss it as being too hard. I think it's absolutely achievable for many users. You just have to put a bit of time in to trying to understand what are the different concepts involved. I see. And so considering then as part of making sure we don't screw this up, what about backups and recovery? What is your thought there and what's the approach uh, that Sparrow Bitcoin Wallet is using? Sure. So, you know, I, I think the first of all, the the, the most important thing that everyone really knows about is backing up your seed seed words. So, so long as you know the threshold, in other words, the number of cosigners that you need to sign, and you have all of the seed seed words for all of the different key stores that, that you have. So if you have those those that those pieces of information, you can pretty much be 
be confident you can restore your wallet. Now, that's because we have more or less standardized derivation paths um, for multi-sig wallets these days. It wasn't so back in the day, but I think largely all of the modern soft, soft, software wallets use the same standard derivation path. So you can go ahead and simply back up your seed words and your threshold uh, and ideally your script type as well. But with just the first two of, two of those, there's a very high chance you'll always be able to restore a multi-sig wallet. I think in terms of the future, we're going to see advocation of backing up the output descriptor for your wallet. Now, that's something which is a bit more difficult to do because, as I said, it was sort of a three or four line long set of numbers and digits. So it's a bit harder than a set of seed seed, seed words. Um, so we're going to have to see what kind of technologies come to market that make that kind of thing easier. But of course, once you have that, then you really have a very precise and clean way of saying, this is exactly what my multi-sig wallet is. Um, and, I, you know, that can't be... Um, you know, sort of underestimated. I think that that's a that's a really nice way to feel confident that you got your backup right. So that's you know right there on the set of settings page in Sparrow. You just click the edit button next to the output descriptor, and it's all it's all there. You can write that down, and then you will know that you'll always be able to recreate that wallet in just about any wallet soft software. I see. And so, as I understand, the Spectre approach on that question is that they have like a PDF output that basically you can print this PDF out and it's got a QR code, which has that, that you can ingest using a QR and it's also written out. And then I guess the other prudent way to go about this is also to have, let's say, USB backup of that uh, let's say the .json JavaScript object notation file. And so maybe as an, as an example, let's say you're doing two of three multi-sig and in each of those three hardware wallet locations, you keep you know that paper and perhaps a USB holding the uh, JSON backup file for the full wallet in each of those locations. And maybe that's something uh, to uh, make sure that even if you were to lose one of the seeds, as long as you still have the quorum, i.e. the two of three or the three of five, you can still, as long as you've got two of three plus that USB key, then you can still spend right that's right i think the the um you know from from for 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 me on a personal level i wouldn't like to send uh my multi-sig wallet details to a printer um uh, and you know certainly if if i had a usb backup i would like it to be an encrypted backup um with a, a really good um password on it so that's you know some things I would think think about from my point of view. Um, I think one of the areas where soft software wallets traditionally haven't been that great is is in the sort of encryption of the wallet files themselves. That's not to say that they all are, but you know, for example, the Electrum client uses a key derivation function called PBK DF two, which is really uh, quite old school. It's sort of several decades old. And it's relatively easy to attack. So your encrypted Electrum wallet is not necessarily as safe as you might think. And that's something that I really worked quite hard on when I was building that area of the Sparrow wallet, was just trying to um, use the, the best tech in that area to make sure that your wallet file itself keeps all of those de details as safe as they can be. 
I see. And I think the other thing to think about is inheritance, right? So this comes up often in these kinds of discussions. It's about when, let's say, something happens to us, how do we make sure our heirs can still access the coins? And I think that is part of the challenge. And it's just, it's kind of just an unsolved problem, in, if you will. I mean, I'm sure, of course, there are companies and people out there working on this. I know Casa have their own kind of inheritance planning. I know Unchained Capital, my sponsor, have you know various approaches and thinking on this. Um, and then people who are doing it in the more, let's call it sovereign or DIY, multi-sig approach, they have to think about how would their heirs recover this. And you know the, the difficulty with that is it might be if we're talking about somebody's cold storage, they might literally not be accessing that for a long time. And that they might, I mean, just as a quick example, if you look at laptops today, some of them don't even support USB. They might only support USB-C. And so that's like another example where over time, if you're not careful and you're not regularly maintaining these things, then you can run into trouble down the line because now your heirs might have trouble actually recovering that. Yeah, you're you're quite right. It is relatively un, unsolved. Um, I do hope that when we get Taproot, we will be able to create scripts that have, or, or more easily, I should say, create scripts that have a certain time delay on them. Because I think that that is one of the 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 approaches that has a good set of trade offs. You know, that you can effectively put your funds in a wallet which protects them from anyone but you um, for a certain period of time. And then that kind of gives you the certainty of knowing that your funds are self-sovereign to you for that period of time. But after that point, they can be accessed by a trusted set of others who you can assign keys keys to. For me, that's one of the most uh, you know interesting ways that we can go go forward. Um, and I think that you know the the kind of scripts that we will be able to write in future, um, in terms of privacy um, level, make that much easier. So so that's I think the way that I hope that gets solved at this time. Um, that's what I have the most hope hope for. Back to the show after a word for the sponsors. CoinKite.com are the creators of my favorite hardware wallet, the Cold Card. This is one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners. It is great in terms of single signature and it also works excellently as part of a multi-signature setup. So if you are sitting on an exchange or maybe you are just on a phone wallet, now's a great time to think about upgrading to the cold card. It has all sorts of features like the ability to use it air-gapped and recently they've got the new firmware version 4 that has libsec P256K1, deterministic builds, the ability to calculate the 24th word in your BIP39 seed word list, and many other improvements. Go to coinkite.com and use the code LAVERA to get a discount on your cold card. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So you can have a separated set of keys for your wallet rather than all on one hardware wallet or all in one phone wallet. You can now Take two hardware wallets, go to unchained-capital.com and you can create a vault with no setup or storage fees. But if you want the white glove treatment, they have a vault concierge service where you can pay $1,500, but you get $50 off for using code Levera and you get two hardware wallets, you get your questions answered and they will have video calls with you and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Unchained Capital are also great in terms of having 
business accounts so you can move your corporate treasury to a Bitcoin standard where you still hold the private keys. Go to unchained-capital.com to find out more. When we're talking about Bitcoin security, make sure you think about your backup and recovery. CypherSafe.io are producing metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel. This is a stainless steel compact wheel-shaped seed backup. And so basically you take the tiles and you slide in four letters for each word, the first four letters of your BIP39 seed for each of those words. And in doing so, you can make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. Also, the CypherSafe will be fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. So go and get yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for 10% off. Back to the show. I see. Yeah. And I think it also just to me spells out the importance of maintenance and thinking about this, not just as like a set it up one time and you're done. It's not that you have to think of it more like a maintenance thing where you regularly go around, you check your keys and you check that everything still works and it's still is relatively, you know, functioning smoothly because you might find, let's say, six months down the line that your laptop doesn't support this kind of thing anymore. Or like you get a new laptop and you didn't think about it. And now your old hardware wallet that only has USB doesn't work with this anymore or whatever. And that now you've got to start thinking about, okay, you know, I need to get like an air gapped one or whatever. Or even another example might be micro SD cards, right? Maybe the support for that fades over time. Or I don't know. There's, there's all these things that we can't know and we can't predict so you just have to be regularly out there checking it and maintaining it and i think it's just early days high risk high reward yeah look i i, I think that that traditionally has been where it's been been at I, I i do believe that industries do um mature over time i think we're we're in that phase phase now in terms of the sort of wallet um era i think back in the day that was certain certain certainly the case um, but you know, ultimately, so long as you have those seed seed words, it's very unlikely we're going to get to a stage where, you know, the set of BIP thirty nine seed words you just can't use them anymore. Uh, that's I, th- I think that you can pretty much rule that out. So so yes, you, the the hard hardware wallet that you have may not function in sort of ten years years time, but you know, it's unlikely that you won't be able to restore a set of seed, 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 seed words. And I think that the risk is coming down all the time. You know, we are getting better at these, these things. So, you know, the caution in the past and, and the idea of going back and making sure your setup, setup works is an excellent idea and everyone should do it. But I don't think you should be too afraid that somehow your setup is just going to sudden, suddenly fail so long as you are using the modern technology that's on the market today. Um, because standards were few and far between even as as little as two or three years years back and you know these days we have output descriptors we've got psbts we've got a lot of different technology which is unlikely to suddenly fade it's not proprietary it's based on on bips which have been general general generally and widely adopted um so things are not as bad as they they were um and that's certainly been my um, kind of experience. I wouldn't be able to write as many, you know, wallet import and output um, formats if the underlying data itself hadn't reached a point where, generally speak, speaking, you can import and output things from a variety of different um, wallets um, or different sort wallet of, types. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, sure. Uh, and 
So I suppose that also goes very counter to, let's say, in the example of some uh, companies and people in the in the space doing, let's say, the seedless approach, where you know they try to just use have have additional devices, where maybe that approach that you've outlined is more in line with the let's say the typical 24 words back them up on a metal seed and you might have multiple sets of that because you might you might be doing two of three or three of five or something like that and i guess the other one is there are some wallets going down a more approach where they're not doing the typical backups so one example uh i did an episode recently with dario from moon wallet where they literally it's not a, it's not the typical 12 or 24 word backup they are actually doing the whole output descriptors two of two multi-sig lightning and all this sort of fancy stuff where they are emailing you a backup and now you've actually got to write down their password to decrypt that backup so I wonder if there were if there were to be a hardware wallet coming out trying that sort of approach, or maybe if hardware wallets come out and say, "We don't want you to have to write down the seed words; you just put it on a micro SD card, and then it kind of we're back again to that same problem, aren't we?" Yeah, look, I mean, there's many different ways to do it, and it's hard to kind of you know say this way is right and this this way is way is, way is wrong. I think that all approaches kind of have different trade-offs. I think what you're trying to do is to have an approach which is widely as widely supported as you can because going forward it's more likely that you will be able to you know do some something with that if you have dependence on a single vendor or a single kind of proprietary approach then i think you're at more more risk so i think it's really just around trying to use as many standards as you can and seed words certainly that's a very big standard the standard format derivation paths and script types around multi-sig, which I think have largely really just coalesced now into sort of a, a few very set ways of doing 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 things. That's that's good. Um, output are great. You know, they're just a really great way to know exactly how your multi-sig setup was defined. So, you know, I think we're in a, a much better place than we were. Exactly. And in terms of Taproot, as you mentioned, that opens up a whole new world in terms of scripts and potential script path spends that the user could use. Uh, and I suppose in the future, that might be something like, okay, so assuming we get Taproot, uh, maybe we get it some kind of Musig2 approach. Is that something you're thinking about? You're looking at that? Sure. So, look, I mean... I kind of need to focus, um, you know, to a large, large, large extent, like most wallet devs are on the sort of needs of the users today. Taproot, I would guess, is probably about a year off at least. Um, so I'm certainly keen to get more into it, but you know, um, it's 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 going to be a while before we can actually practically use that. Um, and of course. it's also worth saying that you know the sort of um, uh, um, privacy set is going to be quite small at first. So it's unlikely you're going to want to become, you know, certainly from a cold storage point of view, early onto that. Um, so I, I think we, we have a little time to try and figure out the best ways to do it. Um, and that's great because it allows us to kind of come up with ways which are hopefully better than what we have had in the past. Great. And you mentioned earlier around showing a lot of detail and exposing those details to the user. So let's go into that a little bit. What are some of the details that the user will see when they are using Sparrow Wallet and why is that helping them? Yeah, so it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. You know, um, one of the, uh, the sort of key ideas that I had um, was 
trying to create in a Bitcoin wallet the experience that a programmer has when using a modern integrated development environment or IDE. Um, now, whether using you know whatever it is, Visual, um, you know the, the sort of Microsoft one or Vim, or um, you have a really uh, you know, comprehensive environment that gives you confidence in terms of whatever it is that you're doing. And it, it does so because it gives you the detail behind it. Now, that detail has to be accessed in a way in the UI that doesn't overwhelm, that doesn't kind of throw so much at you that you don't know what you're doing. But it also kind of allows you to really dig in if you have something that you want to go and check. And that that kind of idea is one that I wanted to bring across. So what Sparrow does is it really allows you um, in a sort of a gradually explorable way to dig into the details around what's going on in your wallet. So you can obviously see, like any wallet, you can see the transactions that have happened. But if you want to then go and dig in and then see, well, where did this particular amount arrive from? When did it arrive from? What was the UTXO connected to it? And what is the UTXO connected to that? Then you can go in and dig in and do all of those those things. When you're constructing a transaction, what are the UTXOs going going into it? What's the change? You know, how does that whole thing look? Um, presenting that in a way which is visually easy to understand, and that's really the sort of little graph that Sparrow shows. Whenever you create a transaction, it gives you an idea of what are the inputs, what are the out outputs. You know, many Bitcoin wallets kind of try to go back to the idea that we've always had around an account, which is sort of a balance and then minuses and pluses to that balance. But, you know, Bitcoin under the hood doesn't work that way. It works with a set of UTXOs. And as you know, when you spend a UTXO, you spend the entire, entire thing and you create a new set of them. And if you don't think about Bitcoin in that way, you really are, I think, further down the line, exposing yourself to privacy risks. Um, because, you know, if you consume that entire Bitcoin, people can see, well, it came from that source and that's how much change there was. So therefore, you must have at least that much, right? Those kind of ideas, I think, are very important. Um, and Sparrow is really around just trying to show as much detail as you can. There's also the idea that when you are constructing a transaction and let's say you're doing that transaction we were talking about earlier that sort of cold storage sweat one where you have to transfer the majority of your cold storage funds from maybe one multi-sig wallet to a single sig wallet to a multi-sig wallet you know that that particular transaction you want as much certainty as you can have before you click the broadcast button and that's really what sparrow allows you to do you can kind of dig into really all the way down to the byte level, um, what is going on on there? What UTXOs are being spent? Where are they being spent, spent to? And that gives you the confidence that can reduce that fear, that can take away that sense of worry because you can see what's going on and you can trust yourself. And ultimately, it comes back to the original idea that I spoke about is being self-sovereign over your, your, your funds. In other words, only needing to trust yourself, not needing to trust the wallet, or the hard, hard, hardware wallet because you can go in and just check everything if you really want to.
Right. And I see that that can be very handy when you are teaching people as well. So if you are teaching a new person and you're showing them one example there is you can show them, oh, hey, look, this transaction, it's going to create a change output and that's going to come back to you. And you can sort of show them, oh, see, this amount is the fee, this amount is going to the other person and this one is the change coming back to you. Another example is you can actually see the specific derivation path and you can see that okay this is m slash 84 slash 0 slash 0 blah 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 and then you can actually talk about address uh checking uh, verif- verifying a receive address for example and you can go into as an example you can open up the cold card you can go to the address explorer and then you can show that person oh hey go into the bc1 addresses and you can see the zeroth address right like in programming sometimes they start from zero and then you can check that on your Sparrow wallet and you can see, ah, oh, see, it's got the specific, it's got that same pathway. Yes, that's right. And, you know, that's that's really what I, th- I think it's about. You know, the, the, the other feature that I'd like to mention there is is one that, you know, came out re- recently, which is using the um, replace by fee or R- RBF feature, which is built into Bit- Bitcoin and is really an amazing and underused, you know, kind of aspect to how Bitcoin coin works. So with that, you can send a transaction at a really low low fee, and that goes into the mempool and it just sits sits there, but it doesn't get mined because the fee is too low. And then what you can do is then come along later and you can actually replace that entire transaction simply by spending the same outputs at a higher fee. And that feature built into Bitcoin is 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 just a way to be able to make sure that your transaction is going to the right address before you actually have it confirmed in its first first block. So what you can do is use what Sparrow calls um, try then replace, which allows you to send a transaction at a low low fee, one which is unlikely to be confirmed anytime time soon. Go and check in the destination wallet. Let's say you're sending it to yourself, or maybe you're sending it to somebody and you ask them to go and go and check, and they say, yes, I can see it. It's popped up in the mempool. It's not confirmed firmed yet. And then at that stage, you can then go and, and, and increase the fee on that. And then it will be con- confirmed and go into its first block. So, you know, if that doesn't work, if, if it doesn't appear in the destination wallet, what you can actually do is replace the transaction completely. So you can send it to a different address. Uh, you know, perhaps you just... Re- replace it and send it back to your own wallet. Um, that really reduces the amount of worry. You know, if you think about that cold sweat transaction that you're wanting to send, you can now know before, you know, even if you if if you really don't check it at, at all, you can uh, you can just do the very simple check of going to the des- destination wallet that's going to and saying, has it popped up there? Uh, and if if it has, then you can be pretty sure that you've done everything right. You've also got PayJoin support. So can you tell us how that works and you know what what the story is with that? Yeah, so what we we have 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 there is is the sort of PayJoin in the format of the the pay to end endpoint as it's called. So this works with um a merchant like somebody running BTC Pay server where you know if you go into the sort of invoice and I think it's it's actually on the sort of second tab. If you click click across, there's a link at there there at the bottom for those merchants that have turned 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 it on. And that what that effectively does is puts a URL into your invoice, which Sparrow then 
users to then say to the merchant, say, hey, can you provide me with an additional UTXO to make up this transaction that I'm going to send to you? Now, why do we do that? We do it to break what is called the common input heuristic, which is where basically if you're trying to analyze the chain, you can say, well, all of the inputs to a transaction are coming from the same owner. But in this this case, we have the merchant providing one of the UTXOs. And that allows you to effectively break that because now, you know, you really don't know what's going on. Now, you can't say that, you know, individual XYZ has this much Bitcoin because, you know, part of that amount is the merchants. So that's the the format that Sparrow has built in right right now. Now, the downside to that is, is the need for this HDP address, right? That we need to go and talk to the merchant and say, hey, where's the additional UTXO that you want to add. What, what I would really like to do and what the Samurai wallet has already built in, so you can do this from one Samurai wallet to another, is the ability for any wallet to go and fetch um, a UTXO and to effectively, in a collaborative way, construct a transaction where the inputs are coming from both wallets. And that really, I think, the, the, the part of that that I really like is it helps the privacy for everyone. So, for example, CoinJoin, you know, is 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 a great tool, but it it helps fewer people, particularly the sort of equal output coin CoinJoin, because you know it doesn't necessarily break the privacy guarantees for everyone on the chain. But PayJoin is really great because it it effectively creates doubt for everyone. Right now, you're looking at a transaction and you're looking at the inputs and you're saying to yourself, well, I don't actually know that there's a common owner to these in- inputs. So for me, um, increased adoption of pay join is, is a big, big goal. And I, I would really like to um, find out and, and develop better ways that we can allow just different wallets to be able to create those. Mm-hmm. And you also have Tor built in. So we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but uh, can you chat a little bit about the uses of having Tor built in? Yeah, so I mean, Tor is is a great tool. It obviously allows you to basically, you know, not divulge the IP address that you're using. That's the, the sort of key goal there. Um, and it's it's both great and it's not so so great. So plenty of people have issues with Tor. You know, if you go on any wallet user support group, you will see people complaining about how Tor is not working on that day, or you know those those sorts sorts sorts, sorts of things. Um, so I, I think it's an important tool in the Bitcoiners tool toolbox. I think it's important not to rely on it 100% unless you are prepared to deal with Tor down downtime, and that does does happen. Um, but, you know, it's certainly there in terms of being able to connect to your Electrum server over Tor, um, which is a common way many people will do it. That will allow you to run an Electrum server, let's say, at home, connected to your own node, and then talk to it in a very private way from anywhere in the world. So that's, I think, a very good use case for Tor. But as I say, Tor does come with some downsides, which are worth thinking about. Of course. And I think it's probably worth highlighting just for listeners here that uh, if you are the kind of person who is being Uncle Jim for your new coiner friends, this is probably a really easy way to do that because I've I've been uh, fooling around with it, obviously, just to try around in preparation for this discussion. Uh, and I've noticed it was quite easy to just use Sparrow and connect that through Tor to my Umbral node. So as an example, if I want to help a new coiner friend, I can just tell them, 
hey, good. And if you are out there and you're thinking you're trying to help your friends, if you are running, let's say, an Umbral or one of the other package nodes, you can just get that Tor address and then the port. And then all your friend has to do is paste that in and then boom, now they are connecting their Sparrow to your Electrum server as opposed to a public one. And obviously the aim is ideally they can grow up and become an adult Bitcoiner, run their own Bitcoin node. But while they're still, you know, your niece or your nephew, you can help them out. Yeah. And and I think the, the great thing about that is that you're not putting yourself at risk in any way way there. As I was saying, when you're using the Electric Spectrum server, you are basically, uh, you know, that server has indexed all of the transactions on the blockchain. So that request comes in, the server looks it up and then sends that information back. So there's no risk to your own funds. Your own funds are not stored or there's no reference to the keys that you particularly hold on that sort of server. So that's a really nice way to help people out without putting yourself at any risk at all. Now, in terms of the, uh, I guess, the funding and sustainability of this approach, what's your thoughts there? Because I guess the other thing in the Bitcoin world is people don't want to use something if it's, they don't want to basically trust it too much if it's really new. And so what happens is things need to have time to have been you know built up trust in it and for there to have been other people contributing and eyes on the code and those kinds of questions so how are you thinking about that aspect of sustainability because people ultimately feel like they want to use something that has been around for a while and it's going to continue to be around for a while and i think that's why you know things like electrum have been so long-standing also yeah and i think i think that that's an excellent um you know sort of point of view to have so you know i I think that there is no um really replacement for just the period of of time and and people should certainly be you know cautious when it comes to new pieces of software software as indeed they they are um you know one of the, the 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 things that we can do is is ask for people to take take a sort of look we can ask um for instance bitcoin dot uh, org um, uh, has a review process which they go through before they add any wallet to that that site and that's a process that Sparrow is in now um, you know it's there, there is just no easy way to solve that particular particular issue you know um, the the best way forward as I was saying is to really try and take that as much as you can onto yourself and to, to check and to learn as much as you can so that you can make yourself as secure as you can be. Um, you can, you know, obviously delegate that trust to others and you can say, well, XYZ has checked check the code or this many thousands of users have used the wallet or it's been around for this many years. And those are great sig- signals, but ultimately there's no replacement for the sort of self-sovereign trust that you can have by understanding how Bitcoin coin works and doing your own checks. I see. And uh, just from a Sparrow perspective, then, how is the wallet going to be uh, funded going forward? Is it going to be monetized or is it going to be treated more like it's just a, you know, it's just a free open source project out there and it's just reliant on contributors? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting question i i've um i've had you know plenty of times in my life where i've begun building something and it's sort of turned into something which was a successful uh sort of sort of endeavor 
um, further down, 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 down the sort of road. So I'm relatively com comfortable with working on some, 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 something where the, the sort of end path is not really known. Um, what I can say is that Sparrow is going to remain open source and free. Um, it's not going to change from those, those goals. I can say that it, it sort of gets me up every day and I'm enthusiastic and keen um, to work on it. Um, and, you know, I, I re really just believe that there is so much human good to be done in terms of providing people with platforms that allow them to be self-sovereign over their own funds. That, for me, that's reason enough. Um, I don't need to have additional sources of income to make this worthwhile to me. Now, I think everyone's different and that's fine, um, but I'm really keen to keep building on this to keep making it as good as it can be because ultimately I serve myself by doing so. And, you know, the the sort of feed, feedback and the, um, if you will, the sort of social credit that you get in terms of, of being able to build um, a thing which is useful to many is enough. Um, so yeah, that's the, the best answer that I can give. Um, I'm not looking to make this into a business, um, but um, who knows what the future holds. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's just for now enough that it is um, useful and um, usable by others. Gotcha. Yeah, and I can understand that. I mean, obviously, uh, there are a lot of things in the space that aren't, aren't necessarily done for money, but I think perhaps that helps in a sustainability point of view because then the user looking at that product or that project might think, oh, okay, it looks like that thing is going to be maintained and going forward because they might feel a little sense of hesitation about jumping over to something where it's not clear that it's going to be around uh, or, or I don't know, uh, maybe it, it's um, yeah, it's just less clear in their mind. Uh, but hopefully over time, if people like it, there's more contributors and it builds up a community around it, then that's a, a good sign, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, you know, you, you just have to see something that stood the test of time, like the Electrum client wallet. I mean, you know, it's been around for a very long, long time. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there isn't a business behind that, but it's it's clearly um, a model that can can work. So I look look to that as an example of of um, there's something which which um, uh, you know kind of indicates that the model I've chosen for Sparrow can be one that lasts for a long time. I see. Yeah. And of course, there is number go up. So of course, you know, for many of us, uh, <laughs> that kind of does help, uh, obviously, for people who can maybe as number goes up, there might be more people who are, let's say, passionate about something, and now they can afford to work on it in either in their spare time or even as their full time thing. So we'll see uh, what the future holds there. So uh, look, I think it's probably a good spot to finish up here. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about the wallet? Um, no, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the last kind of feature that I wanted to touch on, um, which is, um, yeah, I, I think just interesting for people to think, think, think about is, is really to try and, um, minimize the, the trust that you have to have in the environment in which the soft software runs. So, you know, I've mentioned this before, and I think it's a, it's a discussion which needs to, had had more is is the idea of running uh, wallets in a browser. Um, I do think that there are risks there. I think that the risk can be reduced um, by using certain kinds of browsers, but um, it is something which you know I certainly think think about 
a lot. You know, for example, if one was to fire up Chrome, which, uh, as we know, is one of the most, one of the least privacy conscious browsers that there are out there, uh, where you can have all kinds of plugins. Um, you know, you have to think about whether that is the best environment to run, you know, your, for example, your cold storage wallet in. Um, and that's really one of the key goals that I had building Sparrow Sparrow was just to get away from the sort of browser world, which has been so much a part of the way everything was built for a long period of time, because we wanted, you know, to have things as, as sort of easy to build as cross-platform and as sort of connectable as we could. But it's, it kind of runs, a lot of those ideas run pretty contrary to the idea of a cold store storage wallet. Um, so it was really getting away from that and getting back to, you know, the idea of a traditional desktop app, which, which um, was a key goal, goal for me in this. Um, and it's just something which I, I think needs to be talked about more um, and thought about, about, particularly, as I say, when it comes to securing the sort of uh, the sort of cold storage funds that you might have. Right. And I think probably the other implication as well of what you're saying, and potentially that's the security risk for the person, is if they are known to be holding a lot of coin, well, then that itself becomes a security risk. So people sometimes when they're new, they confuse privacy and security. But this is potentially one example where there is some blurred line there that if you are known to be, uh, you know, a big hodler, then that might essentially paint a target on your back. Yeah, I, you know, from a, a sort of a risk point of view, I think the Bitcoin community has been focused, and I think rightly for a long time on the sort of nation state attack, you know, the sort of, they're going to ban Bit Bitcoin, uh, it's going to become a black market good. Um, and what can we do about that? And, and that's, a, that's a great point of fo fo focus to, to, to have. But I think if we look at the, the sort of momentum, um, you know, right now, you know, in places like the US, it seems very unlikely that we're going to have a ban. It, it just, it's just, to me anyway, seems a very unlikely case that that sort of momentum is going to shift back. Now, they could ban self-custody and do all kinds, kinds of things. I think those debates are very much still to be had. But um, it seems to me that one, one risk which has sort of been a little bit more um, sort of overlooked is, is the idea of a, 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 a sort of a, a sophisticated criminal attack um, based on the fact that somebody finds out how many coins you have and then targets you um, as a result, result of, the, of that. And that, to me, seems like a more real risk that we should perhaps start thinking more about. Um, so, you know, that means, first of all, around securing the public keys that you have and making sure in the different ways that we've talk, talked about, making sure that those never get leaked. So just making sure that your cold storage wallet is used as little as it can, making sure you're not using it in a browser in, in an ideal deal, deal sense, making sure you're using, um, you're not storing those keys unencrypted on a drive. So those are kind of kind of the the ways in which I would try and reduce that sort of sort of threat. And you know, it's be, beyond that, you know, making sure that you have geographically dis distributed keys. So making sure that any kind of attacker would be forced to go to multiple locations, ideally with different kinds of security attached to them, so that it becomes just really hard for some somebody to rock up at your door, put a gun gun to your head and say, give me all your funds. Um, those are the kind of discussions that I think we should be having having more. Because if you think about what Bitcoin is, it represents, 
you know, one of the easiest um, or one of the most attractive forms of wealth that we've ever had in order, you know, to sort of steal. You know, it's very hard to steal a house or to, you know, steal somebody's gold bars sitting in a vault. You know, that's not an easy thing. But if we're looking at advising people to store their Bitcoin funds at home, and then we're not providing them with the right tools and thinking to be able to really protect themselves against a criminal threat um, when doing so, then I think we're kind of overlooking one of the big risk aspects um, here. So that's really what I've focused on quite a lot um, and what's quite sort of close to my idea of, of how to be really secure. Of course. And uh, I think that can be a bit confronting maybe for some listeners that are thinking, well, well, like, you know, maybe in a few years time, if number goes up and now I'm at massive risk. But at the same time, we have to remember, I think, as my friend Michael Flaxman says, if we can successfully popularize the use of multi-signature, it means there'll be a lot less people who even try this kind of attack. So I think that's also really the opportunity here that if we, let's, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, we as an ecosystem, the Bitcoin ecosystem can successfully navigate this kind of transition where it's kind of a default thing that a lot of people are just using single signature and get them into a multi-signature world, then it may just make it that much more asymmetrically, uh, um, uh, what's the word? It just makes it that much more stronger from an asymmetric defense point of view, right? That's right. Yes. I think, you know, if we can, you know, much in the same way that if we can just make it so that the chosen nonce attack that Michael mentioned just becomes so unlikely that people, you know, that it just no longer becomes something we really need to worry about. This is very much the same, right? It's just about trying to have thinking that makes it so that a criminal, you know, just thinks, you know, that's going to be way too hard because that person is almost certainly with that level of funds going to have multi-seg. It's going to be sitting, sitting in different locations. It's going to require me to you know, not not just enter one place, but to enter several, perhaps some some of those are sort of bank vaults or so, so forth. You know, it, it just starts to become so hard to think about that it really reduces the risk for everyone. Because now, you know, even if you are sitting with all of your funds on your cold card at home, you know, you, you are classed in that same kind of bucket of all of the multi-sig users. So, yeah, I think that that's a great idea. And, and one, one of the kind of reasons why we really need to make multi-sig a good option and, a, and in fact, a default option at some point in the future. Excellent. So, Craig, uh, I think that's a good place to finish up here. So before we let you go, Craig, where can listeners find you online and where can they find Sparrow Wallet, obviously? So I'm on Twitter at uh, Craig Raw, uh, all one one word, and Sparrow can be found at sparrowwallet.com. Again, Sparrow Wallet, all one one word. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me, Craig. Thank you. So I hope you found that one useful in terms of knowledge about Sparrow Wallet and multi-signature and Bitcoin security. Go and give it a try and also see how you go with helping your new coiner friends or potentially if you are new and you are sitting on the exchange, it's time to start learning about self-custody. Subscribe to the show in your podcatcher applications and you can find me online at stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I will see you in the Citadels. (laughs) 